be to God. Please join me in praying. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for all that it tells us about your love for us, how you redeem bad situations, and how much grace you have for us. Lord, I pray for your help as I preach. I pray that you would ignite within us a real fire for your truth. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, at some point in the life of a Christian, there is a self-inflicted distance from God. I literally don't know a person who is a Christian over the age of 25 who cannot readily tell me a time in their life when they chose to walk away from God, when they turned their back on God, when they went down the wrong road. I'm speaking for Christians here. I'm not speaking of those that are not yet believers, but I'm speaking of people that knew what it's like to be with God and to know Him, and they've turned away. This is a common thing for the Christian experience. For those that have never walked with the Lord, they only know the distance. But for those who know the Lord, they know the feeling of having been with Him and then going down the wrong path, getting lost, getting distant. And I want to suggest this morning that no road is too far for God's grace. I think it's fascinating, actually, to trace the steps that people make when they get off course, either in our own lives or in the lives of others we know about. To look at one decision that led to another decision that led to another decision, and you find yourself way over there going, where is God? The choices that we make are really important. And anytime I think about opportunities or forks in the road, I think of Robert Frost's very well-known poem, The Road Not Taken. It's the one that starts out, two paths or two roads diverged in a yellow wood. Um, I think it's a beautiful poem in and of its content, its structure, its form. But I think what's even more interesting is that he wrote it in jest. He wrote it as a joke for a friend of his, and his friend didn't get the joke. He actually wrote it about his friend, and his friend didn't realize what Robert Frost was doing. You see, they used to walk in the woods of New England, and there were many trails, and it was a beautiful place. And every time they came to a fork in the road, he would deliberate at length, wishing he could go down both and having a really hard time picking one or the other. And Robert Frost thought this was kind of comical, and so he wrote this poem about these two roads that diverge in a yellow wood. And it comes to this concluding line. It says, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. And when you hear that last line, it sounds deeply profound, like there's incredible wisdom here, like make the right choice. But when you read through the poem specifically, it it says that both paths were kind of equally used. They were of equal value. They were the same, more or less. But then it sounds like there's great wisdom here. And so his friend, when he read the poem, didn't get it, didn't get the jest. And I don't think most people do. When I first heard it, I thought, yeah, this is about the, the consequences of our choices. This is a really important work. And he's kind of flippant about it. After the first service and after the second service, two people told me the little quip by Yogi Berra. He says this, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. <laughs> Making light of our choices, right? But our choices matter. It, deter- it, it really determines how things play out. It matters whether you go right or left. And so we read this poem and we think, yes, our choices do make a difference. They're so important. And what happens when we make the wrong choices? Well, God's word is full of accounts and teaching and encouragement 
of what to do when you get down the wrong road. And today we're starting a new sermon series. We're looking at the story of Ruth. Ruth is pretty amazing, really. I want to encourage you to get a pew Bible and follow along. It's page 222. That's important because that's easy to remember, and it's very hard to find Ruth. It's literally only four chapters long. You can just blow right past it in the Bible and not even realize you've done so. But the context of where it is is actually important, as well as the content. Now, I want to encourage you in this sermon series to read all four chapters in one sitting several times, maybe even every week. I've decided to take the four chapters and more or less split them in half. So we'll have eight sermons from Ruth. And I promise you we could do way more than that. But um, I don't want to exhaust it, but I also don't want to just breeze past it. So this morning, I'm going to look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And I feel like I need to give you a little bit of orientation geographically for this text. And so I have a map. And if you'll put that map up there, that's the Dead Sea on the right. The arrow is pointing to a dot, which is the town of Bethlehem. And then in the lower right-hand corner is the country of Moab. Moab is not part of Israel. It is a foreign country. And the story of Ruth, the account of Ruth, takes place first in Bethlehem, then they sojourn down into Moab, and then they return back to Bethlehem. So it's kind of got a U-shape in the story. They're in Bethlehem, they go down, they return, and then they're back in Bethlehem. So four chapters, that's where we're going. This is a highly crafted, artistic work telling the story. You only have four chapters to tell a story of huge significance. You better choose your words wisely. And the author of Ruth did that well. In fact, my section for today has bookends. In verse 1, it says, In the days when judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. There's one bookend. He and his wife and his two sons. Verse 5 says, they lived there about 10 years. Verse 5 says, and both Malon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. See the book ends, man, two sons, and his wife, woman, lost two sons and her husband. Those are the bookends that set this thing up. And in five mere verses, huge calamity has befallen this family. Now, I want to ask a question that I'm not going to answer. Were their choices sinful in choosing to go to Moab, in choosing to take foreigners as their wives? Were they sinful? Or were they just maybe unwise or just maybe we'd say unfortunate? I'm going to leave you with that question, and we're going to keep asking that question as we go through this this whole account. But let me color it for you. In verse 1, it says, in the days when the judges ruled. Now, here's where page 221 in the Pew Bible will be helpful. You just look back one page and look at the last verse of Judges. This is uh, Judges 21-25, last verse of Judges. It says this, in those days, meaning the days of the Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Okay, that's starting to color their decision a little bit. This is telling us that this was a time of widespread rebellion. God's people were in the promised land, and they were doing whatever they wanted. They just didn't seem to care about God's word. So that gives you a, a sense of the spirit of the age. Here's another thing to consider. In Deuteronomy 28, 
God spells out for his people through Moses before they go into the promised land, blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And he tells them a whole lot about life in the promised land. And he says, when you go into the promised land, if you, o- if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes. And then he goes through a list of curses. Note this one. This is Deuteronomy 28, 18. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground. In other words, you won't have children that have children that have children, and you won't have food. Literally, the land will not produce. The rain will not fall. The crops will not come in. You will have famine. And this was intended to be a warning. It was a warning. It was a red flag. If you live in the land of Israel and you find yourself in famine, this means you have walked away from God. And you should turn back, repent, and pray for him to open up the heavens and the rain will come and the crops will produce and you will have food again. So famine meant a warning. It did not mean flee to Moab, typically. Notice something else. There's irony right here in the names. The word Bethlehem, the name Bethlehem, it literally means house of bread. In the house of bread, there is no bread. The name Elimelech, means God is my king. So in the house of bread, the man named God is my king leaves that land and goes to the king of Moab to find bread. Again, I'm starting to color this story a little bit and lead you to think through, well, was this a sinful choice or was it just bad timing? But it does show that choices matter. And in the end, it does make all the difference. But hold on a second. Are you a black and white thinker? Do you like to put things in their neat categories and have everything neat and tidy? Because I want to remind you of something that we see throughout Scripture, and that is that God is sovereign, and he is accomplishing a purpose, and he does it despite human choices. He does it despite sin and rebellion and all these things. Think back with me for a minute of God's promise to Abraham the patriarch. He says, I want you to know, this is in Genesis 15, you need to know that your people, your descendants will be enslaved for 400 years in Egypt. Well, how did they get to Egypt? Well, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers out of jealousy. He ends up being taken down into Egypt, and then a famine happens. That should be a flag as you read the Old Testament. Uh Uh-oh, famine, there must be disobedience against God. But God uses that to bring those people down to fulfill his promise, which then later... Joseph says to his brothers, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. The saving of many lives and a remnant being preserved. And then out of that, the exodus happens with Moses taking them out of Egypt back up into the promised land. So while there was sin at play, you have a God who's working through it to accomplish his good plan. So before you label Naomi and Elimelech as blatantly sinful, keep in mind that God was doing something even bigger here. And we're going to see that play out. I've titled this sermon series, The Lord Redeems, because he's a redeemer. And you can define redeem a couple of different ways. One definition would be to add value in something where it's been lost. Another would be to regain possession in exchange for a payment. And in the story, the account of Ruth, we see redemption on small scale, and we see it on the biggest scale possible. 
We see it pointing to Jesus, as the whole Bible does. But we see it happening even in the life of Ruth, the Moabite, in Naomi, in her deceased sons and their descendants. There's incredible stuff that we'll see. It's a close-up of redemption, and it's a 40,000-foot view of redemption from God's perspective. Now, the last month, I've been reading this and studying and all kinds of stuff, and I can't get the song from Christmas out of my head. I've been humming O Little Town of Bethlehem. It's, it's been odd in, in the summer and hurricane season to be singing about Bethlehem and imagining Christmas lights and snow or whatever. A little town of Bethlehem. Do you know why we sing a little town of Bethlehem at Christmas? The obvious answer is that Jesus was born there. But do you know why Jesus was born there? Because he's the son of David and King David was from Bethlehem. Do you know why David is from Bethlehem? Because he's the great-grandson of Boaz who was from Bethlehem. We'll get to Boaz in chapter 2, but he's the kinsman redeemer, and that's a title we'll also explain. But Boaz was from Bethlehem. God was lining up the house of bread to have bread in it, Bethlehem, so that we could sing that song at Christmas. Actually, I think he had a lot more in mind than that. Now, Ruth was probably written to specifically legitimize King David's monarchy, that they would show how he was legitimate in the house of Israel, that he was part of the right genealogy. And so the very end of Ruth, if you just jump a couple pages over, the, the last paragraph is a genealogy for King David. And it goes through several generations, and it says, you know, I'm not going to read them all, but it says, um, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, Jesse fathered David. What's even more fascinating is if you go to Matthew chapter 1 and read the genealogy of Jesus, all of that is in there and several other surprising characters like Rahab the prostitute and Tamar who had a whole difficult story. There's a lot of stuff in there and you find that God was weaving an incredible story through this family going down into Moab and he was making good on another promise he made to Abraham. He said, through your offspring, all the families of the earth, all nations would be blessed. Here he's blessing Moab by bringing a widow of Moab into the family line of not only King David, but Jesus, the son of God. It was a foreshadowing of what we would see in Pentecost and Acts and the disciples going out to all nations with the gospel. This was a hint at it. God was blessing Moab by bringing Ruth into this grand and glorious genealogy. It also... It also shows us God's grace to those who are repenting and returning to him, how quick he is to receive us when we come back to him. I want you to make a connection between Luke chapter 15. Dan read for us just a part of the prodigal son, the parable that Jesus told. And I want you to notice that the story of Ruth and the story of the prodigal son have some similarities. We have somebody sojourning in a far land. We have famine. We have a calamity that happens, and they're destitute, and they recognize that there's actually a house with bread. The, the, man, the parable of the prodigal son has a man who says, I want to eat what we're feeding the pigs, and how much more food is there in my father's house? I will return to him. Naomi's down there, destitute, you know, her bookends have happened. She no longer has sons or a husband. She's got these two Moab uh, widows that are her daughters-in-law, and, and she hears that there's now food. There's bread in Bethlehem in the house, and so he, she heads up there. So we've got this 
this parallel happening. Whether it was through sinful decisions or ignorance, I'm going to let you decide. But what is clear in the story of Ruth is that no road is too far for God's grace. God weaves his perfect plan through our decisions. He's not thwarted by anything. Now, verse 5, and both Malon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. It asks a question. What do we do when we hit rock bottom? When you're laying on your back, there's only one way you can look. You look up. I met a, a friend, um, in, I was taking a continuing education class this summer up at Gordon-Conwell up in Boston, and I met a classmate of mine, really sharp student, he's studying for ministry, he's in the Presbyterian church, but I'm trying to get him to come Anglican, but we'll see how that works out. Really smart, really well put together, has a great wife, I met, met his wife, we hung out all week and did all kinds of great stuff, and then I learned his story, and it shocked me. He has a pretty sordid background. He's been in full-on heroin addiction and selling drugs. And I went, how is that possible? You woke up one day and went, I know, I'm going to stick a needle in my arm. How do you get to that place? And he said, actually, uh, and he was a, a star hockey player. He also was from Pittsburgh, where I'm from. So we were talking hockey. I played hockey. And so we, we had all these connections. He goes, well, I was with some of my friends. And there was a hookah. And he said, and so we were playing around with the hookah. And then... Gateway drug. And then later, somebody for a birthday brought a bag of marijuana, and then it became marijuana. And then after a while, it was fun, and somebody brought mushrooms, and then somebody brought LSD. And then somebody, he's like, I didn't like cocaine. I like to to mellow out. That scared me. I'm like, that's scared? And then he he, he got onto some prescription pain meds, and then he wanted those opioids. And it wasn't too hard from there to make the jump to full-on heroin. And then he got busted, and he went to jail. He got sober. He was laying on his back, and he looked up, and God intervened in his life, and all sorts of grace, and he returned, and now he's preparing for ministry, and he's really gifted, and the church will be blessed because of this. Little steps getting away from God, just one decision after another, and he said something to me that I found really interesting. He said, at first, it was a party. It was fun, because all of our friends were doing it, and he said, but by the time I was into the actual hard stuff, I was constantly trying to hide. I was trying to get away from people. I wanted to be alone. I wanted to use my drug and feel the peace come over me and just mellow out and drift into nothingness. I wanted to hide all the time. I got isolated. I lost my community. I lost my friends. I lost my family. I lost everything. He was literally on his back, just like laying there. And no road is too long for God's grace. And now he's got this story of what God has done. It doesn't have to be the radical story of the drug user. It's just one decision after another. We can go looking for bread in the wrong places and find ourselves spiritually destitute. In fact, I'm suggesting every Christian does at some point. Now, you might not go to those extremes that my friend did, but what does it look like in your life when you start to make the choices to walk down the wrong road instead of the road the Lord has for you? I want you to hear me on this. Bethlehem will never be without bread again. Jesus fed 5,000 people from a couple of loaves and some fishes. He literally multiplied bread in their presence to feed all of these people so much so that there were 12 baskets left over. And when that happened, that's in John chapter 6, it's also in the other synoptic gospels, but in John 6, he says some interesting things. After this event, they want to make him king by force. So Jesus hides. 
Sneaky Jesus goes up into the woods and he hides there in the middle of the night, walks out on the lake to his disciples and they get to the other side and the people figure that out. And so they walk around the lake and they meet him over there. And he says, you're seeking me because you ate literal bread. You're seeking the wrong thing. You need spiritual bread. And then he says this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He also says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. In that statement, he was pointing to the cross. He was also setting up the the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion. He was saying, I'm going to literally die for you. And in so doing, I'm going to spiritually feed you. And you will never be without bread. He's telling us about what he has done to provide. And how there really is no road that is too, too far, too long. You can never be too gone for God's grace. He welcomes us back. Redemption is regaining possession in exchange for payment. God does this on the cross. He makes a payment in order to redeem our lives, to win them back, to add value where it's been squandered. The prodigal son comes to his senses and goes back to the father's house. Naomi comes to her senses, goes back to Bethlehem. I want to suggest to you that you should not spend another day in spiritual famine. I want to encourage you to turn around and return to the Lord. No road is too far for God's grace. Would you pray with me? Lord God, I thank you for the good news that your love for us is so big. Father, I pray for those of us in here that know your grace and have walked away. I pray for those who have never known it. Would you give us hunger for you? And Lord, I pray for those of us that are walking with you, that you would give us a heart for those that don't know you. Lord, I pray for the names on this wall over here, the three for 30 names, those that we're hoping to invite to Alpha. I pray that they would come and find bread, spiritual food, nourishment, Lord, would you show us quickly when we start down the wrong road? Provide the way back for us. And thank you for your open arms. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.